this is episode 86 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with James C. Nicholson. Jamie is the author of numerous books, including The Kentucky Derby, How the Run for the Roses Became America's Premier Sporting Event, Never Say Die, A Kentucky Colt, The Epsom Derby, and The Rise of the Modern Thoroughbred Industry, and The Notorious John Morrissey, How a Bare Knuckle Brawler Became a Congressman and Founded Saratoga Racecourse. Jamie received a PhD and JD from the University of Kentucky, practices law, and teaches U.S. history in Lexington, Kentucky. Today, we're discussing his newest book, Racing for America, The Horse Race of the Century and the Redemption of a Sport. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with James C. Nicholson. However, he likes to be called Jamie, so you'll hear me call him Jamie, and he's here with me today. So hi, Jamie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Carly. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to have you. And we're going to learn a lot from Jamie today because uh, not only has he written a a bunch of books about the thoroughbred industry, which we're excited to dive into, but he's also the editor of the Horses in History series through the University Press of Kentucky. Did I get that right? You got it. Awesome. So, Jamie, you know, for people who listen to the show often, how I always love to start these conversations off is just to learn how your relationship with horses began. Uh, Because, you know, and I also love that you're a gentleman coming on the show, and you have involvement with horses, because a lot of us these days are ladies. So I'd love to hear your history with horses and and how you got interested in, in being around them. I grew up on a thoroughbred farm in Lexington, Kentucky. It was my grandparents' farm, and my family lived adjacent to it. And I had a friend whose grandfather and uncle trained American saddlebreds. I had a chance to ride them a little bit at their barn. But from the time I was very young, horses were kind of just around and part of the scenery. I started working on the farm as a teenager, summers, Saturdays, a little bit after school, um, mostly on the maintenance crew. I would help out preparing yearlings for, for the fall sales. And one summer in college, I, I worked as a groom for a thoroughbred trainer in Ireland. And since then, I've, I've had a variety of jobs in and around the thoroughbred industry, uh, including my current job in equine insurance. and. My wife shows hunter jumpers, but an occasional trail ride is, is more my speed. <laughs> I hear you. So it's almost like you were born into it with the family farm, and then you married into it with a wife that loves to do hunter jumpers and and you ride and, and all those things, and, and you grew up in Kentucky, and there's horses everywhere. So it's like sort of natural that you would kind of progress into 
equine insurance, and you write books about them. I mean, you ha- you received a PhD and a JD from the University of Kentucky. You practice law and you teach U.S. history in Lexington. And on top of all that, you are an author. Uh, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to ask why thoroughbred racing in particular. I mean, it seems to make sense. You grew up in the bluegrass country, but you know, what inspired you to start writing about thoroughbreds? And you know, the Kentucky Derby is of particular interest to you. Well, in in hindsight, it would it would seem like it it, it all made sense and, and would have come naturally. It was it was more of a an accident that I started writing about racing. It felt that way at the time. I was in my first year of graduate school at UK uh, for for history, and I needed a paper topic. And the professor told the class that you should probably pick a, a topic of local significance because they're easier to research. And he suggested, well, how about the UK basketball team? Um, something about that. And I like the sports angle, but I didn't like his specific suggestion. And so I decided to try to answer the question of why the Kentucky Derby became a big deal, both culturally and as a, as a horse race. And that, little paper eventually became my first book. I hadn't intended to write about racing. It just it just kind of happened, but I, I found myself returning to the subject largely because of what it can tell us about American society and, and culture. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not aware of too many realms of, of American history that that involve so many people from so many different kinds of, of backgrounds and that can tell us so much because of the sport of racing's long history dating back to the colonial era you can you can really tell a lot about a particular time in american history by by looking at, at horse racing yeah and that is incredibly fascinating and and you have really explored this in a variety of books so we're going to talk about your new, newest book here in a second but you you are also the author of these are long titles bear with me here but the Kentucky Derby, How the Run for the Roses Became America's Premier Sporting Event. The second is Never Say Die, A Kentucky Cult, The Epsom Derby, and the Rise of the Modern Thoroughbred Industry. And then the next is the notorious John Morrissey, How a Bare Knuckle Brawler Became a Congressman and Founded Saratoga Racecourse. I mean, there's some like really interesting history and stories inside of these books that you've written. Do you want to give us a little, you know, highlight from each book so listeners can check those out too before we get into your newest? Sure. Yeah, they, they are long, long titles. But the, the first one, the, the Kentucky Derby book, I, I tried to explain how and why the, the race became an important piece of, of Americana. Conventional wisdom held that Colonel Matt Wynn, the longtime manager of Churchill Downs, was this master promoter and he kind of willed the, the race into success, but the, the story was more complicated and, and more complicated than we need to describe here. But some of the, the aspects of, of why it became a big deal included that the Derby was, was a beneficiary of, of the fact that racing was banned in the early 20th century in most states across across the United States, and Kentucky was becoming, for complicated reasons, of an important tourist destination. Mm-hmm. And the Derby and Churchill Downs and, and Matt Wynn were, were beneficiaries of a, of a complicated 
set of circumstances. It wasn't just that, that he advertised really well. <laughs> the second book, Never Say Die, tells the story of the first Kentucky bred winner of the Epsom Derby, England's greatest horse race. And that, that colt was born on my grandfather's farm or uh, land he, he leased before he started the farm where I grew up. And, and the, the colt's name was a reference to a difficult birth and which included a, a drink of whiskey for, for the foe when, when he was groggy and having a hard time standing. There's also a, a fun connection between Never Say Die's win in the, in the Epsom Derby and the, the early history of famous rock and roll band, The Beatles. Uh, you, can, you can Google that. It's, it's, a, it's a long story, but, but it's fun. So, so that book weaves a number of threads together to explain how this Kentucky-born Colts win in, the, in England helped to transfer, transform international thoroughbred racing and breeding at a time when English racehorses were still widely considered to be far superior to American breads. And then the notorious John Morrissey started as, I was, I was hoping to, to try to explain the, the history and the allure of the racetrack dates at Saratoga Springs, New York, which dates back to the 1860s. And quickly it, it became apparent that, that the story of much of the allure of, of Saratoga is tied to this character, John Morrissey. He had come to the United States as a child from Ireland in the mid 1800s and he became American champion heavyweight boxer, and gangster, and a professional gambler, casino operator, and then a, a congressman. And he founded the racetrack at Saratoga as a, as a way to increase business for his casino there. And he lived a remarkable life, but his contribution to the sport of horse racing had largely been forgotten in part because uh, racing's leadership didn't want to play up the, the tie that, that the sport had in some cases to the criminal underworld, as, mm -hmm. as, uh, as I mentioned before, because of uh, efforts to, to ban gambling and, and ban race. So he, he had for a long time kind of been lost to history. Yeah, and what I love about all of this is like this is like this must have been fascinating to dig into and bring the the subject to life. But also, you're you're telling history that sometimes is forgotten or washed over because people don't want the associations, which which happens a lot. In in that this is what authors do it with when they're interested in a topic and they do a deep dive in their research, they bring the truth back to the surface in in your contribution to racing and telling the history the way it really was rather than, you know, how people want it to be. And I imagine, I went to ask this question too, in telling these stories, I'm sure, you know, there's this saying, right, that history repeats itself. Do you see lessons in these stories uh, as you're researching them that can be applicable to today's world? Probably. And, and definitely when you're, when you're researching, depending on the, the time that you're, that you're, living in and the, and the context if you're looking at, at horse racing from the past, certain things 
look look different in 2020 than they than they might have in 2010 or or 2000. And you're looking for accuracy. You're looking to tell the whole story, but you're also looking for things that that you find interesting. That it's reasonable to assume that that others will. And for example, and it, it, it's the same in in politics or in society or anywhere else but in in horse racing when you're researching at a time when there are voices in opposition to horse racing it's 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 fairly easy to gravitate toward stories from the past uh, that, that might give us some some better insight into into how how those reform movements work and I think it probably is instructive for people who, who would think well they could never do anything to Horse racing, it's been around forever. It'll continue to be around forever. Well, it, it very nearly wasn't 100 years ago. Winds happen to, to change one direction or another, it, it could happen again. Yeah, absolutely. That's why these stories of the past are so important because there's parallels to our future. So uh, thank you for bringing those things to life. Now, your newest book is Racing for America, The Horse Race of the Century, and The Redemption of a Sport. This, this one sounds really good. So tell us about this newest book. Well, this, this book tells the story of a 1923 intercontinental showdown at Belmont Park in New York City between the winners of the Kentucky Derby and Epsom Derby that year. The American horse was Zev. The British horse was... Papyrus. It was the first time that two such high-profile horses had, had represented the United States and Great Britain in, in a match race. And so the, the book looks at the lives and careers of the major players in, involved in in this uh, much-hyped event, uh, both human and equine. It was it was dubbed by the sports writers, journalists as, as the race of the century at a time when sports writing was really coming to its own and, and you had coverage in newspapers across the country of this of this race. And one of the characters was Zev's owner, Harry Sinclair. He was he was an oil tycoon mm -hmm. who was being investigated by Congress for his role in the notorious Teapot Dome oil scandals. But despite Sinclair's personal troubles, which, which were largely kept out of the sports pages. The race, the Zeb Papyrus match, and the, the attention that it received really helped the sport to get some national positive exposure at a time when it wasn't, it was just a few years in the past that state after state was, was uh, Banning the sport and mm. and it helped help pave the way for for its preservation and eventually its its growth. Wow! And this is all during the Roaring Twenties. That must have been fascinating to dive into. I mean, I love I love how all your the topics that you've chosen to cover involve like uh, you know oil tycoons, the Roaring Twenties, the you know the the under the underdogs, kind of like the underworld parts of things, and and even the the horse born on your grandfather's land, how he shot to life from a shot of whiskey. I mean, these are all like super interesting stories. It, it just you know, how do you do your research? How do you dive into that and grab the time? Because what I love about these books is they 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 yes, they're nonfiction, but they read like stories. You know, these are 
these are things that you don't think like exist in the world. And then you're telling the story of something that's real, but it reads like a story. So how do you dive in there and, and do your research and get the facts straight? Well, it starts with with picking a good topic, and, mm. and and I love horse racing. But to me, the most fascinating parts often are the are the stories behind the behind the horse races. And, and every horse has a has a jockey and a trainer and an owner and a groom and a, a farm where it was born and raised. And, and so there are countless different different angles to to explain what this horse race meant to the people who were who were experiencing it both both on the inside and the and the fans and, and gamblers mm-hmm. on the outside. So but how how I research the books it, it it depends on the subject but but nearly all of them have, have started with with many hours in the Keeneland Library in Lexington, Kentucky, which is home to a massive collection, trade publications, and institutional records, and I certainly try to use as many secondary sources for historical context as well. I'm wondering, are, is there anyone still alive that you are actually able to talk to and interview for your books or, or, or family members of the people? Do you, do you ever do phoners with, with these people or meet them in person for coffee or something? I haven't, but depending on the, if, if I were writing about something more recent, mm. I certainly would. Um, and I could have people ask me that a lot with the with the Derby book. They say, oh, did you talk to Bob Baffert? Did you talk to Mike Smith, Jockey, or or Chris McCarran, or any of these people? And, and for example, for that project, I really didn't because I was interested in how the United States, America more broadly experienced the Derby rather than a blow by blow of all a hundred and whatever runnings. I, I wanted to see what was attractive about it. Why people who wouldn't watch another horse race all year would tune in by the millions on the first Saturday in May. What was what was the Kentucky Derby to them? And and you start with the answer, well it, it, it's it's uh, it's the fanfare and the hoopla and the mm. and the hats and the the mint juleps and the and the song and 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 then you move down and say, so what is what is that why is that attractive so in in that situation i didn't not that i wouldn't be be interested in talking to to people who participated in it but that wasn't the perspective i wanted i wanted i wanted a, a different one that i could get from Say what the sports writers were writing about is here we are at the Kentucky Derby, and, and you see how how their descriptions changed over time. What they thought their readers would would want to know, and a lot of times the the, the race itself was was merely secondary to describing the, the lovely women or the drunks in the infield or, or, <laughs> or whatever. The guys um, running across the uh, the out the uh, porta johns. Right. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, but that's that is fascinating, yeah, because that's an entire different perspective than the people that are in it and training the horses. I mean, what was going on culturally in the United States? I mean, it's still a race that people who don't participate in horse racing all year tune into 
watch. So that's like the beginning of marketing or the beginning of branding, like how these people talked about this race and brought people together. I mean, that's a fascinating exploration. I can only imagine that people are going to jump all over this and want to learn more because you're telling like how they built the race, not, you know, the people that were bringing their horses to it, but like, you know, culturally what was going on around to make this thing such a premier event that that's so cool. (laughs) It was a lot of fun to to think about it. It took, it it took a good portion of my brain space for a long time (laughs) i'm sure but you're like you can you know like you dove deep into you know why why people really were attracted to this race and it's still one of the most attractive races that's out there so what a fascinating journey that must have been writing that book now you know has anything really surprising turned up for you as you've been doing your research on these on these different topics? I mean, we can talk about something surprising from your newest book or even one of your other books. I mean, the Beatles connection is kind of fascinating, but we don't want to give that away. We want people to read your book. But like, has anything come up that you were like, "Whoa!" That like really surprised you? The the Beatles connection was was definitely tops of the list, but. Um, <laughs> with the with the most recent book it was it was surprising maybe not shocking but it was a it was a useful reminder to to see the extent to which zev the the kentucky derby winner who who ran against the england's top three-year-old in this race of the century how how big of a deal he was in american culture at the time he was a he was a legitimate celebrity athlete on the on the same level as as a babe ruth at the time a, a, a real a, a big name a, a household name and it was it was interesting to to dive into the newspapers that were covering the race and 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 talking about the american hero zev how how quickly the country and, and the culture just forgot about him and i, I I think part of it was that his his owner was a shade unsavory, and he just didn't didn't quite meet the mold that the nation needed him to. So it, it's a reminder that things that are that are of central importance today may or may not be that way, may not be part of what people remember about this moment in history. And that that was certainly true of Zev, and it, it's a reminder how. We use our celebrities, our, our heroes, our athletes. We, we use them when they're convenient, when they fit a, a, a narrative, when they can say, see, we're uh, hooray for the American horse. Let's beat those British. When the story fits that, that mold, it's uh, journalists will, and, and fans will run with it. And when it's when it doesn't quite so neatly fit, they just they, they forget about them. Kind of put it to the background. That mm-hmm. I'm so glad you said that. I mean, that is that is very relevant. And I think a lot of things being written now are bringing some of the stories that have sort of been written out of history back into the fold. And that's not, that's a great reminder. It's something to remember. Like when it when it fits us, we speak to it and we follow it. But when it when it doesn't fit, the narrative changes, and we have to be conscious that that does happen. Humans do do that. <laughs> That's a really great point. I always like to ask, like, you know, you live in bluegrass country, you're around racehorses all the time. You've researched the Kentucky Derby, the thoroughbred racing industry. It, only 13 horses have won all three races in the Triple Crown. 
what do you think? What are your thoughts on what it takes? What kind of caliber of horse it takes to be able to win all of all three of these races? Well, if there were one magic formula, you would have more triple crown winners. Mm. You'd have more people uh, breeding for for those traits. But it's when you're thinking about the triple crown, it's it's useful to remember that it's kind of an anomaly in American racing, and that it's the only time that most of these horses are going to be asked to, to run as far as a mile and a half. It's certainly the only time that that these that, that they'll be asked to, to run that far in such a short amount of time between races. It, it uh, takes a special horse to win the Derby at a mile and a quarter, and then the Preakness two weeks later, mm-hmm. a mile and three sixteenths, and then the Belmont uh, three weeks after that at a mile and a half. So to win any of those races, let alone all three, a horse is going to need speed and stamina. But it it also needs precociousness. Be mm-hmm. ready to begin training usually as a as a two year old to, to get a foundation of, of fitness by by the end of its two year old year. It, it needs soundness to to be able to to withstand training and the, the triple crown trail and they need athleticism to be able to get out of the gate well to to be able to avoid traffic trouble to be able to find the right the right spot the good ground the the best running room and and if if you don't have that you you have one one bad race one bad trip and you're you're, you don't get a second shot at the at the triple crown it's only for for three-year-olds so all of that, and then then luck, regular racing luck, and also probably the the luck to be to be born in a year where where there's no other uh, super horses. <laughs> and I think you just nailed it on the head right there. Super horse. I mean, essentially, is you know only thirteen have ever done this. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit with you about uh, writing and marketing. You know, your your book is traditionally published uh, through the University Press of Kentucky. What is it like working with them? And you shared something really interesting with me. This is an academic publisher, so there's like a bit of a process to this that that I wasn't aware of. So I think your listeners will be really interested to hear about what it's like working with them. It's 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 been great for me as I said every every author's needs are different and, and what they want to accomplish with their writing or, or with their book is is different so I, I can't say uh, that, that this is the right fit for for everybody but it but it it's it's definitely been been great for me and a, a, an academic publisher like University Press of Kentucky is similar to other traditional publishers in that that they'll take some things off an author's plate, um, production and, and cover design, and hiring a copy editor, providing early suggestions for improvement, um, marketing assistance, and they produce a, a really nice finished product. And I think you've got one right right back there over over your shoulder, your newest book. This is this is the newest one. I'm kind yeah. of flipped there. But it's yeah, beautiful. It's, it, it looks looks nice. Yeah. Uh, but a difference between other traditional publishers and and an academic publisher, among among other things, but a, but a primary difference is is that academic presses 
tend to require a, a, a process of peer review. Mm. You'll, you'll talk to an acquisitions editor and say, I have an idea for a book or I have a, a finished manuscript. Would you take a look? And, and they'll say, well, that, that sounds like a, a good idea. Let's, uh, once you work up a proposal, here's, here's, what, here's what that needs to look like. Or they, they read all or a portion of the manuscript and say, yeah, this, this looks like this would fit our needs or our, our strengths. Let's, let's send it out for peer review. And what that means is that they will find usually two, two to three readers, reviewers who have expertise in, the, in, in your field and at least for nonfiction and history, the realm I know anything about, they'll send it to people, usually, usually people who have published books before, but, but definitely have some experience or, or expertise in the field and they will give feedback, which is useful, mm. very useful if you're willing to take it. If, if you say, I, I, what's this clown know? Um, then not very useful. <laughs> but they'll, they'll say either they, they recommend for publication, they don't recommend, or they recommend with, for publication provided that the author makes, makes certain changes. And so that's that's intimidating and, and, and an obstacle that, that some people would say, I don't, I don't need to worry about that. It's, it, it's necessary for people who work in uh, academia, mm -hmm. for people whose jobs or promotions uh, depend on having published something that, that's been through the peer review process. But mm -hmm. plenty of people publish this way and aren't in that in that realm, but but if you're not in that realm, it, it might not be uh, as attractive. But it it if it shouldn't it shouldn't scare off anybody either. I think it's a it's a it's it's a useful tool uh, when 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 you allow it to be. Yeah, and well, that's another form of maybe advanced feedback. So a lot of independent authors that I speak with, we use what we call beta readers or advanced readers, where we send you know, to our uh, trusted early readers, we send early copies and they provide feedback or they catch things. But in academia, it's uh, peer review is a bit is a big thing. You know, it's like in publishing is a is a big deal, like publishing papers and books mm -hmm. and, and what have you with peer review or early beta reader review the feedback kind of stays with you and gives you the opportunity to improve your manuscript. So I think it's useful. It's just, it's interesting. That it's kind of built into your process of getting the book across the finish line with your publisher, which is, I think, really fascinating. And then tell us about the Horses in History series. You're the editor for it. It's funny looking back on it because <laughs> I, I suppose it, it got its, it, it, it had its, Beginnings when I was looking for a publisher for my first book about the Derby, and and I think I, I think we'd already been we were already fairly well down the road. But uh, thinking back on, it, I wonder why I was so confident, bold to be the wrong word. But I said, you know, you all, uh, thank you for for agreeing to publish this. Looking forward to it. But what about other other equine topics what uh there, there really isn't anybody doing a, a whole lot of it you all why aren't you all doing more and well we, we would we just uh don't have any 
any projects and the an acquisitions editor that I was working with there ended up, um, I think she took that seat or for all I know, she already had that seat and this was just a confirmation that it was a, a good idea, but she and I worked, worked up a, a proposal for a, for a series and, and the vision was, I think we're, we're moving toward that was, was to not be, not be limited to resources, but to, to include everything from polo ponies in ancient China to mules to, 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 to war horses to, to, to anything dealing with the relationship between uh, people and, and horses at, at any time. We, we, we started with, with some equine biographies and, and we, we, we're moving forward with, with a couple of projects that I think are going to, to broaden the scope of the, of the series, but it's a lot of fun for me and, and very rewarding to see these, these projects go from idea to, to fruition. It's, it's, it, it's a similar satisfaction to, to having written a book myself, but a lot easier for me. <laughs> Well, editing, I don't know, editing can, I'm sure is not an easy task, like being, being behind the scenes and making books better. But I love this concept. I love that it's inclusive of all horses in history and their stories. And I just, I think it's a brilliant idea. And isn't that funny how that little magical thing happens when, you know, like a, like a seed starts and then all of a sudden, wow, look at what's happening. I mean, because I've had Let's see, Jennifer S. Kelly, Peter Lee, Milton Toby on the show. He's great. I mean, now you, and there's there's many more out there that, you know, are telling these stories. And I just, I think it's fascinating that that you, you're embracing it, the publisher's embracing it, and there's just more coming. I mean, this is limitless, this this series. And, and there's avid readers out there who love history and horses. And, you know, there's people who just like to read history, but then there's people who like to just read about horses. So you've got like, Two two solid demographics that you can pitch these books to. <laughs> well, that that was our that was our hope and our, our belief, and and so far it, everything that's that's gone through the pipeline has has worked, it's been it's been good and, and been well received. I'd like to ask this question too, because I mean, look at all you've done. What do you wish you'd known when you started out on this journey of being an author of books? I probably wish that. I'd understood the the importance of reading as, as much as as much as I could. And I, I was always I liked books and, and liked reading, but I didn't learn till till later on the, the significance of being an active reader and, and, and participating in a in a community of of readers and, and or writers and, and understanding that the reader is the, the other side of the same coin of writing and that that without mm-hmm. without both you don't have a, a book that that comes to life you just have words on a page on on a shelf so i i would tell my my younger self to take reading more seriously to to, to find writers that that you enjoy and to see how they're how they work how how they use language to communicate how they organize structure their books what makes their story enjoyable and, and followable and i would probably tell my younger self that be sure that you understand the significance of, of editing i think it's mm-hmm. easy to to assume that authors type away and they, they 
finish the last sentence and, and have have the last period and send it off and and it's a book and and I've, I've come to, to appreciate more and more every year that, that good writing is, is is much more about good editing and 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 repetition of editing and, and going through a manuscript time and time and time and time again to to be able to take a an adequate book and make it a good book to make it take a good book to make it a make it a great book it's not just the words that that pop off the, the top of your head these are this is uh you want to make the make the words sound good together you want to to make the pieces fit you want you want the reader to not see the the, the sweat in the, the eraser marks and uh, that's probably what i would what i wish i knew better but i'm i'm learning as i go yeah and i i love that you said that those are two great pieces of advice i mean you no book i think you said when the last period is is punched on the keyboard that's when the real work begins you know like no every book is there's a team around a good book that helps it be successful the author brings the story and the words and the editors and prove it and then they'll hold their team of everybody else that does whatever they do around it to make this thing exist. But I loved how you said that you you would tell your younger self to be a more active reader. Isn't it funny how after you've started writing a book, you start reading differently? Like you start, you know, I read differently now that I've written my first book. And, and, and it's an, I've improved as a writer because I'm reading differently. I'm more active. I'm engaged. I'm looking at structure and plot and the way they're using punctuation and word choice and it, it's like before it was just like a you know movie on my mind blow through the page but now I'm like actually look like really looking and really reading it's like using my brain in a different way and I think I think that's what you're alluding to is is that is that sort of your experience as well it is and it's um I'd imagine I've never I've never done anything with with film for example but I but I would imagine it, it's difficult for, a, for somebody who's directed a movie or worked on a, on a movie set to be able to watch a movie like like I do which is just to enjoy the story they're looking at cuts and, and camera angles and lighting and all that stuff and I, I, I find myself yeah doing doing something similar when reading a book now which is a it is a different experience and but it's I don't think it, it spoils the story. I, can, I I still enjoy reading and enjoy the story, but I'm but I'm kind of doing two things, yeah. two things at once. Learning, kind of looking, trying to look beneath the uh, behind the curtain and 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 see what's see how the wheels are moving. And uh, but it, you can you can do that and, and still still enjoy the the, the surface of the, of the story. I think. Totally agree. Yeah, I, I still enjoy a book as much as I always enjoyed a book. I just, you know, it's like it's a little bit more, I guess, in depth. And mm -hmm. the analogy of the the filmmaker watching a film, it, it's exactly like that. I, I That was a great analogy. So I always like to ask these questions of authors that come on the show, because sometimes the answers are similar, but sometimes they're different. But there's always a little glimmer of insight inside of them. So in your experience, what has been the hardest part about being an author, and then on the flip side of that, what has been the very best part of being an author for you? Well, for me, it's 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 got to be when when somebody tells me they got something out of something I've written or that, that they enjoyed it, especially when it's not a friend or a family member, it's somebody I didn't know before. Um, it's it's really nice to and, and kind of can can keep me 
plowing ahead when when I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to have a story that's gonna it's gonna work. It's nice to to remember uh, the, the idea that that maybe somebody's understanding of, of some small corner of the world was was broadened or deepened just a just a touch by by something that I've written and superficially it's it's nice to to have a, a finished product and, and put it on the put it on the bookshelf like a participation trophy or just a little tangible reminder of the of the time and effort that, that went into making yeah for sure I mean there's nothing like holding a book for the very first time or hearing someone you don't know say man I loved what you had to say in that book I mean just the idea that we created something that never existed before or told a story in a different way is just really powerful we have to remind ourselves of that, I think sometimes as authors, because we can get really hard on ourselves. And I guess that's one of the difficult things, right? Is probably the you know the author mindset. You know, <laughs> it's like, how do I write this book? Why why, why bother her? Why, yeah, why am I doing this, this, this to myself? Hard and there's other things I could be doing with my time. <laughs> yeah, I could go eat a hamburger uh, with my family rather than you know trying to make this monster work. But in the end, it's very rewarding. And, the, and then that leads me into this next question. I you know I love that. That you're you you teach history and you've written these books. Like, is there one common myth about writing a book that you'd love to, you know, knock off knock off its rocker or debunk? I suspect that thanks to resources like like this podcast, like other websites and blogs and how-to books, I, I I would imagine that there are far fewer myths out there for people who are looking to, to, to learn about the book world than, than there were just a few years ago. So I, mm. I, I hope that's the case. Big picture, I would, I would say that maybe it's, it's not quite as, as hard as, as some people would, would, would think it is. I, mean, I, hear, I hear a lot of people say, well, I, I can never write a book. I mean, how, do you, how do you do that? Crank out hundreds of pages. That's, that's impossible. And it's, it's not easy, but it, but it, maybe not for the reasons that, that people might think. It's it's I mean, everybody's written a couple pages or or maybe a, a longer paper some, at some point in in school, and and so a, a book's less a, a continuous hundreds of pages of uh, words than it is a, a a string, a collection of, of shorter sections. So it, that part's not that hard. I mean, the the, the challenge is, is having an idea or a story that's that's going to keep somebody's keep a reader's attention for more than a couple of minutes. We talked about the significance of, of editing before, but I, I think it's worth repeating that, that it's just that's where really the, the the last word, the last period is is really where to me good good writing begins and and really is the difference between something that 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 a reader is going to be able to, to to read and enjoy and just a collection of, of words on on a page and it's a it's a fine distinction but it's a but it's a really important one so how do you approach writing writing your books uh and you know finding the structure 
to tell that story that people will want to read because clearly you've done that several times here. It is daunting to, to start writing a book, uh, at, least, at least for me, but I try to smooth over that, that hurdle by, uh, before I start writing, I've been, been working largely in my mind, but eventually on, on paper, on a, on, a, on a loose outline, a loose idea for a, for a structure, and I'll, I'll keep working on that and editing that throughout the whole process. And I'll, before I start writing, I'll eventually have some pretty good notes that, that fit the, the various pieces so that I, I don't have to, so, so I can fairly smoothly say, okay, I think I have a general idea of, of what I'm trying to say and how I'm trying to say it. And then I can start writing. It's like I've, I've gotten a, a bit of a running start. If I just had to sit down and say, okay, in the beginning, I, I, might, not, I might not be able to start. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's like laying out a template for where you want to go, like where do you where you where you want to go, you know, chapter by chapter and how it's going to end. And I imagine with research, an outline is even more vital. I mean, it's important in fiction too, but I, I can imagine it's even more vital because you're working with dates and timelines and events and you know, you need to kind of plug those in so the story can take shape. So an outline is a great way to start. And then you're not right facing what, you know, 80,000 words without a, a guidepost. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and for me, some, it depends on your, your topic, particularly history and, and academic history. Some people are, are writing more or to, to provide a set of information, mm -hmm. but with what I've been drawn to and the, the kind of stories I want to tell, I, I, I want to sneak in the information. It's valid. It's documented. It's, I'm not, not making anything up, but I also want to make sure that, that it works, not just as a piece of history, but, but also as a, as a story that, that can be read. And that, that's, that's the challenge. That's maybe a bigger challenge. I can find something that's interesting and say, hey, I bet you didn't know about this. Here's what happened. Mm -hmm. uh, but if, if the story doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and end of, of, of something that resembles a, a traditional narrative arc, then I don't really want to read it, or I, I, I probably won't enjoy it. And I, I, want, I want my books to be read by somebody, not just, I mean, there are some, some historians who just need to know that people are aware of their book and can find it in the, the, the research library once every 10 years when, when, when somebody uh, has a need, but, I, but I'm, I'd, I'd rather people read and enjoy the book. So that's, that's another thing that the, a little bit of organization and, and an outline allows me to convince myself that, that this is going to, to work, that I can get to the finish line uh, and have a story in, in one piece. Yeah, I mean, that is an art, you know, to, to tell a story with true characters from history. And, and that does make it so much more enjoyable for readers. Yes, yes this happened, but let me, let me tell it to, let me storytell it to you, you know? So I, I can only imagine uh, that is a challenge and a worthy one when you finish and people are saying, I loved what I learned from the story you told about this real thing that happened in history. That's, that's gotta feel so good. Absolutely. So, 
you've cut, you have, you, you deep dive into history. You, you choose interesting stories to tell. Uh, you've been focused on, you know, some of the biggest races in you, in us, the Kentucky Derby, obviously you have a lot of knowledge. You grew up there. What are you curious about? Like what's next? Where are you heading? Like you, you've got this new book out now. Do you have another project in the, the background or something you're thinking on? Sort of. I, I have a, I have a topic that, is intriguing and that I've started digging into and that I've compiled a bunch of notes for, but we're gonna see, uh, it hasn't quite come together yet. There was a, a horse in the early 20th century who won the Kentucky Derby by a record margin uh, in record time. Looked like he was gonna be a superstar and he, he strained a, a tendon in his next race and was, was out of training for two and a half years. He spent much of that time turned out with cattle on a ranch in Texas. <laughs> that piece is is pretty fascinating, or or potentially fascinating enough to, to center a, a story on. So hopefully it'll click. Or I, I don't know if I don't know. I, I assume this is. I'm not the only one who thinks like this, but it might not be universal for writers. It, I'm. It's always possible when I'm. So far, I've, I've, I've always, as I've finished one book, I've had, a, I've had the idea for the next one, and that was true of, of this one, but I'm always uh, aware of the possibility that it might, might just dry up, and this, this might be it. I, I, <laughs> it hadn't happened so far, so it probably won't, but um, so it, yes and no to, to, your, <laughs> to your question of do I have a, another one in mind. You know, that, that's a really cool answer. Uh, I was speaking with another author, Rennie Dyball. She actually worked for People Magazine. And she she said something similar that that you said, you know, it's like next projects, you know, sometimes not so sure, is this going to dry up? And she she said, she's been practicing being comfortable with the times where the muse like needs a rest, and things don't feel like they're clicking, because she says, like, involuntarily, things are still kind of moving around, in the back of your mind and you're getting organized. So you kind of have an idea, you know, but that lightning bolt usually comes when you just allow yourself the space to be like, I can breathe. The muse is going to come back. It just needs a little bit of a break. And I thought that was really interesting insight too, because I, you know, I think all authors feel that way. You know, you finish a project and then you're like, Oh my gosh, am I able to do this again? Do I have another idea? But I think, you know, if you're creative, you're always a creative and things kind of bubble back up when the time is right. You know, it's like the universe says, let's rest for a second. And then all of a sudden you're jumping out of bed in the middle of the night or coming out of the shower and you're writing, you know, 16 pages of notes and you're like, ah, that's it. <laughs> do you think, do you think, does that, does that resonate? I, I think so. Yeah, I, that, that sounds, that sounds like perfect advice. I think you just have to keep your keep yourself open to, to the, the possibility for inspiration or that I mean, the, the, the pieces will click. And if, mm -hmm. if, if there's always things rattling around up there and, and, mm -hmm. and the old noggin and eventually they're, they'll, they'll settle in a, in a shape that's, that makes sense to, to move forward. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's good advice. I know it makes you feel better. Be like, okay, I can, I can breathe. I can rest, but it'll come. Just got to give it, give it a little space. You know, it's, it, that was great advice. Like when she said that, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, yeah, I'm going to sit with that. Uh, you know, in my final question, is there anything a reader would be surprised to learn about you? We kind of tickled music a little bit at the beginning. And I think we're going to kind of circle back to that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, 
I was trying to think of what what would be what would be interesting. I don't know what would be surprising, but when I was younger in my in my twenties, I played played in a band, played played bass with some friends from high school that that had all come back to to Lexington. Not good enough to devote our lives to it, but but good enough to to get on some some bills and and some stages opening for for some fun artists. If if, if anybody's a fan of alt country Americana music, they, they might know some of these names. But we were fans of some of these guys like the Avett Brothers and Sturgill Simpson, James and Murtry, and Alejandro Escovedo, uh, and, and Really had a lot of fun with it. We still play every now and then here and there, but it's uh, it's gotten more challenging with kids and jobs and all that. But how cool! I mean, thank you for sharing that with us. I mean, just if you think on it, like you're a groom in Ireland. You know, you wrote these books. You're a professor. You play bass, opening for some really awesome Americana bands, like that's a cool life. You know, now you have a family, but you know, you still mess around with the, the creative pursuits. And, and I think that's all we can ask for. Right. So like, thank you for, you know, sharing that with us. I think that was a neat little tidbit. And Jamie, I have loved speaking with you today and having you on the show. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see where the horses in history series goes. I think it's limitless and I'm excited that it's, you know, you're, you're on this project and you're the editor and you're, finding great stories for us horse lovers and history buffs to read. Can, can you let listeners know where they can find you in your books online? Well, any day now, you you might be able to, to find me on a website that, that we've been working on, which will be in coming weeks, jamescnicholson.com, or I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you can ask for my books at your local bookstore. They can they can order them if, if they don't have them, and you can support your 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 local your local store or online at, at University Press Kentucky website, which is KentuckyPress.com, or Amazon, Bookshop.org, or wherever you like to buy books. I love that you mentioned support our local bookstores. Let's definitely support our local bookstores and the presses that are putting these books out. The authors, you know, we want these places to exist and live and breathe for us. So uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. And I will make sure to link to all the places where you can reach Jamie in the show notes. And, you know, Jamie, I wish you so much success. Thank you for opening up and sharing your process and your experiences with us. Well, thank you, Carly. Thanks for, for having me on. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. 
I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.